hello again and welcome to you all as we continue our Rethinking Church series with part two of being a church of repentance and faith. We're going to dive straight into it, so if you missed last week or you can't remember much of it, then here's a quick recap. We're exploring Ezra chapters 9 and 10 and the story so far is this. Ezra is made aware that the people have broken God's command by not keeping themselves separate from the neighbouring nations who are described as having detestable practices. And what's more, some of God's people have even taken wives for themselves from amongst those foreigners. Now on hearing this, Ezra is distraught and a crowd gathers as he laments and prays, confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the, the house of God. The people are equally distressed and join him in grieving until eventually the suggestion is made that they must send away the foreign women and their children in order to appease God's wrath. After much debate, the plan is agreed to and the book of Ezra finishes with a list of all those who are found guilty of marrying foreign women. It's a fairly messy story and one of the things that we considered last week was whether this particular account is proscriptive or descriptive. Is it describing what should happen or what did happen? My suggestion is that, while instructive, this is largely a descriptive account of God's people wrestling with how to obey the commands of God and then trying to deal with their inevitable failures to do so. We concluded last week with three observations about repentance. Uh, we repent because we are grieved by sin, by the fallen brokenness of humanity. We repent not just privately, but collectively, because we're all the body of Christ. And thirdly, our repentance begins with prayer and confession, but also leads to action. Now, I was doing some reading on repentance this week, and I kept coming across variations on the R's of repentance. I found the three R's of repentance, the four R's, the six R's. There was some good stuff in most of them, but, but one list seemed to capture what is going on here in Ezra quite well. And it suggested the four R's of repentance. They were responsibility, regret, resolve and repair. Responsibility, regret, resolve, repair. Last week, we saw Ezra take responsibility for the sins of the people. And that was followed by the regret of the whole people of God. This week, focusing on chapter 10 of Ezra, we're going to look more at the third and fourth steps of resolving and repairing. But before we get to them, there's some, something critical that needs to be recognised. The reason repentance is so powerful is not so much because of what we do, but because of what God does and has already done. In Anglican liturgy, a confession is always followed by an absolution, a reminder of God's forgiveness and grace. Because this is where the real power of repentance lies. I suggested last week that Shechaniah got it right when he named the specific sin of the people. And the next thing that I think Shechaniah gets right is his follow-up statement, the reminder of hope. He says, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. 
In spite of this, there is still hope for us. This is a reminder that God's not a vengeful God, but a, a gracious God. It's an affirmation of all that Ezra has prayed, that at a the time and again, God has been gracious with his people. So we need to remember that if God's people at the time of Ezra can take comfort in their understanding of God as a loving, forgiving, gracious God, how much more can we take comfort in this reminder as we live on this side of the cross? How much more assurance can we have that God will and has already forgiven us? In the midst of our grief at the brokenness of humanity, how much more can we say, but in spite of this, there is still hope? Let me explain why I think there is so much freedom and hope in God's forgiveness. The definition of absolution is the formal release from guilt, obligation or punishment. Now, there is a danger in over-spiritualising this and purely thinking in terms of our eternal destination. Because of God's forgiveness, I won't face punishment when I die. Now, there is certainly some truth in this, but it isn't the whole picture. We don't have to wait until death to benefit from God's forgiveness. In repenting, we are forgiven and absolved of our guilt. I suspect that it is guilt that is actually the most damaging aspect of sin. We're all capable of doing and saying things that can cause all sorts of hurts and damage. But often what damages us the most is our guilt. Take the example of Candace Warner. Now, I don't normally pay too much attention to this sort of tabloid news, but uh, something about this story caught my attention. Candace Warner, wife of Australian cricketer David Warner, appeared recently in the TV series SAS Australia. And in the show, as part of a trust exercise, the star was asked to share something she regrets and is ashamed about. Now, Candace spoke about an incident from 13 years ago. I'll spare you the sordid details, you can read about them if you like, uh, in the papers. But what was telling was not the incident itself, but the impact that it has had on her since. She went on to say, and this is quoting her, Yes, I'd made a mistake, Candace offered to the camera. But is that really worth every single day the media trying to drag me down? I don't think so. I remember sitting on the side of the street and not being able to take it anymore, just thinking, if this is what life's about, then I can't take it anymore. As someone in the media spotlight, Candace has had to endure the reminders of her guilt on the public stage. But I think that many of us play a similar script in our own heads just as regularly. Even when everyone else has forgotten about whatever it is that we did, or even when hardly anyone else knows about what we did, we still carry that guilt around. But God frees us from that guilt. When Jesus told the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, he released him from the guilt he may have carried all his life because of his infirmity. When Jesus spoke on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do, he released us from the burden of guilt. Yes, the damage of what we've done still remains and needs to be dealt with. 
the guilt that can destroy us from the inside is removed. We're freed from it. And because of that freedom from guilt, we're able to work at the next two R's of repentance, resolve and repair. But we have to remember that freedom from guilt. That's what God's forgiveness means. And it, it means that now. So we move on. Resolve is the step we often associate with the word repentance. Repentance is often defined as turning around or turning away from our sins. We resolve not to repent, not to, we resolve not to repeat the same sin. This step is a bit more complicated than the previous two. Responsibility and remorse may take a while to get to. It often takes a while for us to take responsibility for our sin and, and then to feel that remorse. But once we arrive there, that, that work is generally done. The resolve not to repeat the same sin is a more ongoing project. It may involve changing a behaviour or a habit. It may involve a shift in who we associate with or what we watch or read. It may involve a change of mindset about something or someone. It may involve avoiding certain situations or taking certain actions. There's no formula for these resolutions and they probably require some advice and wisdom to navigate. But that's what it means to resolve not to repeat those sins. This is where I think in the Ezra passage, I think Shechaniah starts to get it wrong. His first solution is to send away the foreign women and their children. And you get the sense that he's keen for action and wants it done straight away. And sometimes we can be like that. In our desire to distance ourselves from our own sin, we sometimes leap straight to an extreme response in the other direction. Our actions are well-meaning, but are not always wise or sustainable. I'm sure you can think of examples of that. In the account from Ezra, it seems that the Israelites respond to Shechaniah's suggestion. And in fact, Ezra calls them all together and says, make it happen. But here we see the messiness of sin. This is not a Disney movie or a Marvel movie. We can't wave a magic wand and fix everything or go back in time and make it so it never happened. Consider the reality that Ezra faces. It takes three days just to gather all the people together. And when he does, they respond with this. You're right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. It's going to take some time to work through the mess they've created and it won't all be resolved while they stand out in the rain for one meeting. This is the reality of sin. The reality of sin is that it hurts, it damages, it leaves scars. The wondrous joy we have is in that, that in repentance, by God's grace, we're set free from guilt. But as forgiven people, we're set free then to do the work of repairing the damage done by our own sins and the sins of others. Where trust is betrayed, there might be forgiveness, 
But the trust must be rebuilt and that may not always be possible and certainly won't be quick. Where hurt has been inflicted, there might be forgiveness, but wounds still take time to heal. Where relationships have been broken, there might be forgiveness, but reconciliation may not always be possible or appropriate. To be a church of repentance, we need to act as a gathering of broken and sinful people who have been released from guilt and are seeking to repair the damage of sin. That means our focus should not be on blaming or condemning. These are guilt-driven responses. Our focus should be on caring for the wounded, restoring the broken, guiding the lost and protecting the vulnerable. And not everyone will agree on what should happen. There's a little line tucked away in Ezra that says, Only Jonathan son of Ashael and Josiah son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, oppose this. Who knows whether they had a better plan than divorcing those wives? We, we can't know. So what can we learn from this accounts in Ezra about being a people of repentance and faith? I think there's a number of things. We can be challenged to ask ourselves what things, what habits, what activities, what mindsets, what things are we married to that take us away from God? We can be reminded of the call and the power of repentance, of taking responsibility for sin, for those things that take us away from God, of grieving the brokenness of humanity, both individually and corporately. We can be reassured of the forgiveness and release from guilt and shame that God promises, delivered already through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can be enabled to gather together as a church of sinners, a collection of broken people that can be honest about our failings without fear of condemnation. We can be resolved to turn away from our sins and to strive to live lives that are pleasing to God. And we can be encouraged to continue to do the hard work of repairing that which is broken in the world. That's what it means to be a people of repentance and faith. Confident in God's forgiveness. Working to heal the damage done in a broken world. I want to finish with the passage from Colossians, which was our second reading today. I think it sums up what it looks like to live as a church of repentance and faith. In Colossians chapter 3. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bear with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in, your, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. 
and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May you know the freedom from guilt and the forgiveness that God offers us through the death and resurrection of his Son. And may we as a church work together to do God's work through his Spirit in healing the brokenness of the world. Amen.